Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good people from around the world who want to make a difference. Engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. The only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is the finale episode for a six-part mini-series on the George Powell case out of Killeen, Texas. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the season, this was not going to be our typical endeavor. George Powell was already represented by attorneys and was in the middle of his habeas procedures when we took on his case. We began our reporting on the George Powell case based on a request directly from Michael Ware of the Innocence Project of Texas. While on a practical level, George's case of actual innocence seems like a simple one, but the reality is he still has an uphill battle to fight through the court system in Bell County. We've spent the last six weeks bringing international attention to George's case and putting pressure on the present-day prosecutors to finally right this terrible injustice. In today's finale episode, we're going to hear directly from Michael Ware. Mike's going to explain why he asked for the help of the Truth and Justice Army and give us all of the the behind-the-scenes information that led him to believe that George Powell is actually innocent. We're going to take a quick break here for one ad, and then we'll hear directly from the executive director of the Innocence Project of Texas. Today's episode is sponsored by Stamps.com. Every one of us has had the same annoying experience. You get home from work, it's late in the evening, and you realize you have a package that you need to mail out. The post office is closed and you have to work the next day, so the only chance you're going to have is to maybe spend your entire lunch break driving across town and waiting in that lunchtime line at the post office. Well, that's something that's never going to happen to me again, because I use Stamps.com. Stamps.com is convenient, easy, reliable, and most importantly, flexible. Because unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes. With Stamps.com, they bring all of the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. And they make that process super easy because they're going to send you a digital scale that automatically calculates the exact postage you need, the instant you need it. They'll even help you decide the best class of mail. And you can do all that without ever having to lease an expensive postage meter. 
You can create your Stamps.com account in minutes online. Then it's just click, print, and set out for the mail carrier, and you're done. We use Stamps.com here in the studio because our time and money are very important to us. We use Stamps.com here because our time is very important to us. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus postage, and a digital scale, without long-term commitments. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in TRUTH. That's Stamps.com, enter TRUTH. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. All right, so Mike, you were the executive director of the Innocence Project of Texas, and are, are you the lead counsel for George Powell? Walter Reeves and I are, are co-counsel on it. I, we haven't officially, I guess, decided who the lead counsel is. He was on the case first, so I, I guess if there is a lead counsel, it's Walter. You know, he's on the board of directors of the Innocence Project of Texas and is working pro bono on the case. I think George contacted him sometime back. This was back when. I think I was still in the Dallas County DA's office or had just left. Walter actually attended the Forensic Science Commission meeting where they ended up issuing their report condemning the junk science uh, that was presented by the the state at trial and, uh, you know, accepting Grant Fredericks's stellar work as the correct position of the science and, and as it should have been applied in this case. Speaking of of the trial, I guess we'll we'll start there. One big question that people have had for me is how did this happen? You know, and we've briefly covered it from you know for the little bit of the transcripts that I've been able to get through and police reports and things. Uh, but can you talk about the state's strength at trial? Or how did they manage to convict George Powell? I think there's probably a lot that we don't know that the police have lied about, but this is basically the official line. There's a robbery of a Texaco in Copper's Cove. There's a robbery of the Valero not far away in Killeen, Texas. There's a robbery of a Mickey's the very next day in Copper's Cove, once again, not far away from the other two. Then there's a robbery of another Mickey's, this time in Killeen, once again, not far away. And then there's ultimately the one they tried George on, which is the robbery of the 7 Eleven that he was tried and convicted on. And at some point, Detective Ortiz has testified in his official position is after that fifth robbery, which was, you know, a couple of weeks after the first robbery and after or certainly 10 days or more after the uh, the first Colleen robbery, which was the Valero robbery. He gets assigned to the case. I mean, I find it hard to believe that it took that long to assign a detective to these robberies, but that's what he's testified to. Maybe that's true. And that's what fits into their narrative. He says that after he's assigned to the case, I don't know, he piddles around doing some stuff. And then they get supposedly this Crime Stoppers call. Uh, And the Crime Stoppers call is based on supposedly the 7-Eleven video being shown on one of the local news stations. And this person says, I know who that is. It's George Powell. There's no doubt in my mind, supposedly says that. According to the party line, that's the first inkling they have that George Powell may be involved in this case. Now, once again, I have my suspicions as to what really happened, but I don't know that we can ever prove any of that at this point. But anyway, he says as a result, he puts George Powell's photo in a photo spread. 
Now, understand that at this point, all the descriptions of this Robert, these five robberies, have been 5'5". Five, five. Melissa Keene supposedly at one point said 5'10 or 5'11", but then she changed it to 5'6". That very night, that's what she put in her handwritten statement. So all of them well below the six foot three George Powell. Nevertheless, I mean, that being the case, really, George should never have been put in a photo spread to begin with because he's so different than all the contemporaneous descriptions given by the victims of these robberies. But anyway, he is based on this, you know, supposedly at that time, anonymous crime stoppers tip. I think they knew darn well who it was then and they knew they were going to get her some money. I thought I remember reading somewhere or, or catching something in some place that the tipster, Elsie Schultz, who testified at trial, isn't she related to some officers in the area? You know, she told our investigator, Rick Ojeda, you know, he's a former FBI agent. She told him that she had two brothers who were police officers, but she would not go into any more detail other than that. She also told him she was paid money by Crime Stoppers, but she wouldn't go into any more detail than that. None of that came out at trial that she was paid money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and none of that was disclosed to the defense that she was paid money. But anyway, so as a result, he's put in a photo spread. The first person, the first victim of any of these robberies Ortiz goes to is, according to Ortiz, and you know, I think maybe this part is correct, is Victoria Noyola at the uh, Valero that was robbed on Uh, May the 28th, and he goes there and says, or actually he brings her into his office and asks her, you know, do you see the robber or, or, you know, words to that effect? And she goes, well, no, I really don't. I mean, I do know uh, George Powell uh, and I see him, but that's just a customer and, you know, this nice guy sells CDs on our parking lot sometimes. Sometimes, you know, maybe the police come out and harass him some, but he's definitely wasn't the robber. I mean, You know, the robber didn't look like him. The robbers, to start off with, the robbers eight inches shorter than him or, you know, quite a bit shorter. And Ortiz got very, evidently got very frustrated and and maybe a little bit intimidating trying to get her to change her mind, which, you know, is highly improper. And he says, well, and this is according to Ortiz, well, what if I put a sunglasses and a baseball cap on him? Now, that's laughable. I mean, number one, it's just stupid. (laughs) You know, (laughs) you, you, you know. He's not the robber now, but if, you know, he may as well say, what if we put a ski mask on him? Could he be the robber then? Right. You know, that's wrong because it's just stupid. And, and the other reason it's wrong is it clearly signals that's who she's supposed to pick. That is who she's supposed to pick. And you're not supposed to signal who they're supposed to pick. And she goesn't, you know, whatever she said. No, it, it doesn't change anything because it, it doesn't make him eight inches taller, number one. And so he's, you know, he's all pissed off uh, because, you know, he's trying to railroad Powell. So supposedly he makes darn sure that the next three witnesses, no matter what, are going to pick Powell. And so he goes to Melissa Keene. Then he goes to, you know, the two clerks at the Mickey's who had described the robber as five foot five. And so really, that's the evidence against him until they start talking to Demetric Smith, who first contacts them in a written communication in late 2008, I believe. I think that might have been right before he went off to the state school for being incompetent or the state hospital for being incompetent. And they initiate this ongoing dialogue. By they, I mean the state. Ongoing dialogue with Demetric Smith, who's you know up in the Bell County Jail, facing a lot of time. And and he knows, you know, everybody in the jail knows how that whole jailhouse 
informant system works. I mean, it's been going on since the 1600s. It's an institution. You know, it's every bit as much an institution as organized crime is an institution. These cases are not one-off things. They know, you know, I offer my services as a jailhouse informant. I become part of the institution. And so there, there can be a lot that's unsaid. You know, there can be a lot that I know I'm going to be rewarded. It may, you know, it may have to be a wink and a nod, but it's an institution. You know, it's like dealing with organized crime. You know, if you're not rewarded for doing them a favor now, you're going to be rewarded somewhere down the line. Or if you're not punished for something you do now, you're going to be punished somewhere down the line. It, everything, it's not a one-off deal. It's an ongoing institution, the whole jailhouse informant thing. And so he starts working the DAs. I mean, you know, jailhouse informant testimony. I mean, it's like the free market. The more the state or the government needs a jailhouse informant, the more they're going to look for one and the more they're willing to pay for one. The potential jailhouse informant community knows that. And as Demetric explained pretty well in the uh, interview, he knew they were going to need him. In George's case, because George always insisted on his innocence and said he was going to trial and uh, because he was innocent. So he knew that that created a market with the prosecutors for a jailhouse informant because they needed evidence. I mean, you know, if somebody's just going to go plead guilty, they don't need a jailhouse informant, uh, you know, unless they need one to try to squeeze someone into pleading guilty. So they promised him consideration on his sentence. If he would, in fact, testify that George had confessed to him, which is the easiest thing in the world for someone just to fabricate because there's, you know, there's no one else around, according to the story. You know, he can dig through George's materials and find out enough information about the allegations to make it sound credible. And, and you can tell from the audio, you know, Demetric is pretty street smart, if nothing else, despite his mental infirmities. And so, you know, he's telling them what they want to hear. He's telling them what they need. And they promise him consideration on the back end. They don't want to make him an explicit deal because then it's not as easy to lie about it. They're looking for credible deniability. And unfortunately for them, they left too much of a paper trail for credible deniability, but they didn't disclose any of that to the defense at trial. And so he gets on the stand and makes up this lie, says that George confessed to him. Which, you know, George was telling the whole world he was innocent. He was writing everybody telling he was innocent. Plus, he is innocent. So none of it would make sense that he would tell some total stranger in the jail that he's guilty. It doesn't make sense. But we know he lied about something else that was key, too. He lied when he said he had no deal with the state, which the state let that lie stand and did not correct it. And he lied about uh, how he did not expect anything from the state which the state knew that was a lie, and they did not correct it. They allowed him to mislead the jury about that because it helped their case to do it. And so the lawyer yesterday at the hearing, uh, the trial lawyer said, you know, Demetri Smith's testimony was devastating. I believed we had a good case and, and we were headed in the right direction, and we didn't even know about him until the middle of trial or, or right before trial. And we hadn't been provided a lot of his mental health history we just knew, you know, some general vague things. We were told that there was no deal. It turns out there was a deal. As a matter of fact, and he mentioned, you can look in the transcript, the lawyer, Magana, Michael Magana, tried to argue to the jury 
Well, I know he says there was no deal, but don't you know that he is expecting something somewhere, you know, somewhere down the line? And prosecutors get up and object and goes, that's completely outside the record and not true, judge. And the judge sustains the objection. Mm -hmm. They're furthering the lie through their actions and final argument. And, and then, of course, you know, that's before we get to even get to Knox. They still got to have something to stretch this five foot seven guy to arguably six foot three. And, and they don't want to say at least six foot three. So they he stretches it just far enough where it will include George, obviously, and still be believable. So, you know, he gets up there and puts on this basically dog and pony show supported with fabricated animation to show how this five foot seven guy that everybody can see is five foot seven is, in fact, at least six foot one and, and could be absolutely no shorter than six foot one. And so all along, the defense has said he's just way too short. You know, look at all these descriptions. He's way too short to be George Powell. And, and of course, Knox you know, who traded on the fact that he's a law enforcement officer, gets up there and uh, says, you know, as a law enforcement officer and as an expert in this field, I can tell you, you know, without any doubt, this guy's at least six foot one. And so that's how they went about convicting this completely innocent man. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, so that's how we got into the position we're in now. Uh, and we know how the Forensic Science Commission got involved and then the Innocence Project. We're still right in the middle of all George's habeas hearings, uh, and I know you guys had another uh, day in court yesterday, but you who have been right there at the defense bench through this thing, tell us what's been going on throughout the hearing and then also with specifically what happened yesterday. We have to do our job as lawyers, so you know you can't just go into court and say, look at all this, judge. It's not fair. You have to reduce your claims into legalese. You know, front and center of our claim is pretty simple. George didn't do it. In Texas, it's called an actual innocence claim. And it's based on the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution. And it is that it is a violation of due process to convict and incarcerate someone for a crime they didn't commit. It seems pretty nuts and bolts and fundamental. But actually, the United States Supreme Court has never recognized a 14th Amendment right, due process right, not to be convicted of something you didn't do. It sounds simple and straightforward, but it's actually more complex than it sounds to make an actual innocence claim. But we've you know, followed it with related claims. We claim that Demetric Smith perjured himself on behalf of the state, and that in and of itself should give George a new trial. We claimed that the state sponsored junk science that made a difference to the jury, and that in and of itself should give George a new trial, and some other related claims. Now, you know, the latter two claims, the lying jailhouse informant and the junk science, you know, with those claims, someone could still be guilty, but they had an unfair trial and they should have a new trial. But 
like I said, front and center is our claim of actual innocence in which, you know, we've made several arguments, including the junk science and the state-sponsored perjury and other claims as well. So we attempted to negotiate with the DA's office and look, this is obviously wrong. Can we come to an agreement that he should get out? When I was in the Dallas DA's office in the Conviction Integrity Unit, we often did that. You know, once we see that someone is innocent and, um, you know, they should never have been convicted, we often came to agreements with, uh, you know, the attorney of the individual who was wrongly convicted. You know, with Conviction Integrity Units around the country now, you're, you're seeing that. But they were absolutely adamant that they were not going to agree to anything. And so, we ended up litigating this in court. We filed the petition back late last year, have had several status hearings, and then actually began evidentiary hearings in earnest on September the 18th, where you know we began presenting our case. We felt fortunate that the court saw fit to give us an evidentiary hearing. The court does not have to do that post-conviction. Obviously, this case cried out for an evidentiary hearing, but at the same time, the state was arguing we shouldn't have an evidentiary hearing. They didn't want any of this aired out in court. They didn't want to have us present our case in court and have the judge decide. They were totally against that. But the judge did anyway. And so we had hearings on the 18th. We, in fact, called our two key witnesses, I guess, are certainly Grant Fredericks, who you know became involved at the Forensic Science Commission, uh, and Demetric Smith, who had you know recanted. The state refused to grant him immunity, and he decided, you know, maybe wisely, although, you know, I wish he hadn't done this, he decided he wasn't going to testify, which we argued made our nine-minute interview with him admissible as an exception to the hearsay rule. And, and ultimately, the judge agreed with us on that. He didn't commit as to how much credibility he was going to put in that hour nine-minute interview, but he did admit it for consideration. We called traditionally state's witnesses our first day, a lot of police officers who confirmed that they did make the scene of these various robberies. And in fact, the descriptions given by the eyewitnesses were as they noted in their reports or in, in their handwritten statements and universally were eight, six, seven inches shorter than what George is. Um, you know, to sort of contextualize everything that that George is is more than a head taller than these independent descriptions at five different robberies by eight or nine different people. We also, you know, in the in the first hearings, were arguing about whether or not we could put on Grant Fredericks. I mean, he's key to our innocence claim. And the judge, you know, took it under advice. We argued that we wanted the state to produce Knox, and the state does not want to produce Knox. They do not want to put Knox on this. I'm sure Knox doesn't want to take the stand. I'm sure not. And the judge ruled against us on that. You know, he says, I'm not going to make the state produce their expert witness, which I've never seen that before. I mean, that is so bizarre and you know, I want to say ironic, but I think ironic's not not a strong enough word. Is there a reason that you guys, as the defense, can't subpoena Knox to the stand? You know, number one, we'll have to get the judge to approve an out-of-state subpoena. I don't know that he would. 
you know, getting an out-of-state subpoena is an extremely complex and complicated and iffy process. I mean, most states would provide him a hearing in his home state in which he could contest the out-of-state subpoena. I've gone through that process when I was in the district attorney's office in Dallas getting an out-of-state subpoena for someone out of Ohio. I was in Texas, Dallas, Texas. That is not an easy thing to get done, even as part of the district attorney's office. So, yeah, uh, I mean, you know, we got to pay for his hotel, pay for his transportation, and and maybe we will do that. Uh, I mean, the judge may shut us down early on it. We've got a lot more things to do before we have to seriously consider going through that process, but we, we haven't ruled that out completely. Well, I'm sure it has to speak volumes, or it should, I would think, to the judge when he realizes that the state doesn't want their expert on the stand. I mean, that says a lot in and of itself. I would think, yes, absolutely. So there's been some back and forth about the the state, once again, has taken the ironic position, and there's been some testimony and evidence about this, that Demetric Smith is a pathological liar. They're (laughs) the ones that called him. Right. They're the ones that called him. They not only called him, they incentivized him to lie. And as you know from listening to Demetric, that that was the whole idea it was so they would incentivize him. And and they, in fact, came through and gave him a very sweet deal. I mean, he got what he wanted. Now that he is not incentivized to lie, I mean, I, he has no incentive to recant that I can tell or the state has been able to identify. Now that he is completely unincentivized, and as a matter of fact, matter of fact he has incentive not to recant, you know, and just let his lie stand uh, because he got his deal. Now they're saying he's not credible, which is disingenuous at best and flat out dishonest at worst position to take. And it's a logically contradictory, irreconcilable position. But they put on this lawyer who handled Demetric's 2012 plea in, in case to, to sort of discredit Demetric as a pathological liar. Well, yeah. Why did you call him as a witness then? Right. He was credible back then, but he's a liar now. Right, right. I mean, that's kind of what they're trying to get across. And they they called another detective yesterday and along those lines that had investigated the 2012. Well, the, the burglary actually occurred before then, but he actually pled, I think, in 2012 or 2016. I'm sorry. Demetric's mother gave an affidavit to us, and I've met this lady, and she's a very sweet, God-fearing woman and actually lives with Demetric's sister, who is, you know, former military and takes care of the kids, et cetera. And she gave us an affidavit that back at the time uh, that all this was going on, Demetric told her that he was going to lie on George to get a better deal. And she, you know, admonished him that, you know, God would get him for that and he shouldn't do it. So they put on a witness yesterday that was trying to diminish the credibility of Demetric's mother because she gave this corroborating affidavit and it just blew up on him. He said, well, no, you know, Demetric, you know, certainly is, you know, someone I would never believe. But in, in, and I asked him, would you be shocked to know that he came in this this very courtroom and lied on and committed perjury on behalf of the state? He goes, no, that wouldn't shock me at all. But he said, that, you know, his mother was very forthcoming and honest and completely cooperative with him. And this apparently she 
Dimitrik somehow involved her in one of his schemes, and she inadvertently became minorly involved in that she let her bank account be used or something. But she was completely – so the efforts to discredit her through this witness completely blew up on him. As we move on to yesterday's hearing, it sounds like from what I've understood from what I've been reading in these online articles that pretty much every witness the state put on yesterday blew up in their face. I think that's accurate. Allison's been on to kind of explain what's gone on up to this point. So what happened in court yesterday? I know that you had told me that one, and I don't know if this got addressed yesterday, but you guys had filed a motion uh, requesting for the judge to allow George to go physically to the crime scene. Was that ruled on yesterday? No, it wasn't. Not yet. And really, at trial, his trial attorneys, you know, made a very similar motion that was denied. And, and of course, what we have now is Grant Frederick's through calibration, et cetera, showing what it would look like if George were at the crime scene. You know, we filed a motion to literally, I mean, I mean, he's in custody. So, you know, the sheriffs would have to take him out there. But to have him taken to both the 7-Eleven and the Valero and to show literally what he looks like at that point. And, and of course, the, the state has filed a response opposing it, saying, well, Maybe the cameras aren't at the same angle now as they were back then, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, I mean, they've done everything they can to obstruct the truth in this case. Uh, You know, everything from refusing to, from opposing us calling their expert witness to, you know, opposing this motion, et cetera. So he he has not ruled on that yet. And uh, let's see, they, you know, they called Shalene Halvey. They subpoenaed her and called her and put her on the stand. Now, Shalyn was George's girlfriend at the time and his baby's mother, right? Correct. And they lived together. Okay. You know, of course, she was scared to death by all this back then. I mean, the Ortiz and the police ran in on her barge, you know, kicked the door in middle of the day. I say kicked the door in. I don't know. They literally kicked the door in, but they ran a search warrant on um, the Lone Star Inn where she and George and their son were living at the time. And, you know, do what police do when they conduct a search. They turn the place upside down. And she testified. She gave an affidavit. And on the stand, she said everything she said in her affidavit or in her words and true. She said that, you know, they they didn't find anything, really, because there was nothing to find because George didn't commit the robberies. I mean, they took a few things, but they were, you know, nothing that was used at trial. I mean, George had a black baseball cap or something, but. You know, of course, the robber trial had on a white baseball. I mean, the robber that committed these robberies had on a white baseball cap, you know, I mean, that kind of thing. And she said, I can't remember it was then or whether Ortiz came back the next day or maybe it was two days after. You know, it's been a long time. I was scared to death, but maybe it was even then he tried to get her to implicate George. And when she didn't or wouldn't have said he was innocent. He offered her $1,000 cash in Crime Stoppers money if she would do it. And she said, you know, I could have used the money. Uh, and he even played on that. He says, look, you got this young child. You need the money. But, you know, I wasn't going to lie and say he was guilty when he wasn't, even though the police were offering me $1,000 to do it. Or I guess literally offering to facilitate Crime Stoppers paying me $1,000 to do it. Once she finally, they finally figured out which case they were going to trial on and what night they were talking about and all that. I mean, you know, there's five different robberies. 
and, and they're all around midnight. So then you got to, you know, you got to figure out, well, are they talking about Monday night, the ninth? Or are they talking about, you know, Sunday night, you know, the eighth, whatever? I mean, you know, at 12.05 on June the 9th. And so you got to, <laughs> there's room for a 24 hour mistake there. So she said, once we figured out, we, we finally realized, number one, I'd been with him every night during that time frame. But, but that particular night, we were downloading, George was downloading a movie on, uh, I forget what it was, cross Crosswire Software. So anyway, was downloading a movie on the laptop, and we had a timestamp that said 11.58 p.m. when, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, right at the time this robbery's going on. And so – we started following up on that, and long story short, the, the attorneys did get an investigator to look at the laptop. It's unclear right now exactly what happened, but but the attorney testified, the trial attorney, yesterday, and I agree with him. He's like, well, even if we could establish that, that's not an ironclad alibi. I mean it still depends on her word right. that that's what was going on, and I got to tell you, I mean he didn't testify to this, but this is my experience. And, and of course, the, the state's trying to make this big deal. Well, if you had this alibi, why didn't you present it to trial? Here's my experience, and this is based on cases I've tried. This is based on reviewing the transcripts of what turned out to be DNA exonerations. So in other words, going back and reading the transcripts and seeing, you know, how did this trial go down that got this innocent person convicted that's now been exonerated through DNA? They almost always present alibis. I mean, you know, of course you would. You weren't there. You're innocent. Mm-hmm. You you try if you can you try to establish where you were at that point in time number one alibis are very hard to establish because sometimes you're not arrested for days weeks months later and you think well you know where the hell was i that night and number two once you figure out where you were and what you're doing you're with friends and or family that people are going to say well they're going to lie for them anyway and the point is in my 30 plus years of practicing i've never 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 seen an alibi work even in those cases where they obviously were innocent and presented a obviously truthful alibi i have never seen one work ever and particularly when there's an eyewitness that says you know i don't care what his lying family and friends and his lying criminal defense lawyers say he was i know who raped me or i know who robbed me you know number one you, you know beginning with the name alibi Already the jury's suspicious. I mean, alibi, you know, just connotes excuse or lie. You know, you, even in a non-criminal context, you're you're in trouble with a spouse. Well, I've got an alibi, you know. So I don't fault them for not putting particularly as strong a case as they had that it's just not him. I don't fault them for not putting on an alibi, even though one did exist. The juries just don't buy it. Right. And so to be clear, the state actually called her to be on the stand yesterday, not you guys. That's true. But we, her- we submitted an affidavit. I think they hoped she would fall apart, and they were hoping she would not be as intelligent as she actually is and not as strong as she actually is, and they'd be able to confuse her and scare her and get her to say something like what she said in the alibi was something that you know these evil defense lawyers put her up to, and she, she and she can't even read, so she doesn't know what's in there. I think they were hoping for something like that, but it it didn't work. You know, she stood strongly by it and and really reemphasized it. And then we took her through the video of the Seven Eleven, 
you know, I mean, that's part of her affidavit that she's looked at it and it's not George. And she explained all the reasons the person in the video, the robber, couldn't be George. Everything from his appearance, from the, the, the sideburns to the length of his neck to his clothes. You know, the robber in the video is wearing whatever, torn jeans. And, you know, George always wore, you know, pressed jeans, you know, I mean, all that. Besides, that's before you even get to the fact that he's eight inches taller. He's more than a George is more than a head taller than that guy. Right. And other things, you know, the robber's skinnier than George. George was skinnier back then than he is now, but he wasn't that skinny. And George is broader. His shoulders are broader. And, you know, you get a pretty good shot of that in the video. And and besides, you know, George was with her that night. But that aside, that's all just looking at the video. Why all the reasons it's not George. There were two things that she said that really caught my attention that were that really strike me as very credible. One of them was her description of the facial hair that George, in fact, had, you know, would call it a chin strap or whatever. But he had a, th- a thin beard that connected right. his sideburns to his goatee. I mean, that's something that is easily recognizable that this robber did not have. And the other thing right. was they lived together. And she said that, if I understand correctly, that he doesn't own or didn't own a shirt like that. Yeah, that's exactly right. She said, he, you know, he almost always wore T-shirts. He may have owned, you know, a button-down shirt that he almost never wore, but he didn't own one like that that was in the video. Right. So that was really, uh, to me, really credible testimony for someone that knew George very well. There's also a little story, from what I understand, about how the state reacted to her testimony after the fact. Patricia Cummings, you know, who's a lawyer that's part of our team, evidently was a witness to it and was just outraged. A DA investigator, I guess, threatened her with arrest out in the hall and claimed there was an an outstanding warrant on an old hot check or something. It appears that that's not even the case, but it did extremely upset her. It it did scare her, and she left in tears, and that's not even true. I think that was inaccurate information that had been given to her. There was evidently some hot check situation some time back that she thought she had resolved. And as it turns out, I think maybe she has resolved it. But, yeah, that was obviously an attempt to upset her, or it looks to me like it was, and perhaps retaliation for, you know, not testifying as the state had hoped that she would. Well, that's, you know, another message to the the Bell County voters come election time. This is the DA's office. They subpoena this woman, bring her into court, put her on the stand. She stands by her testimony, and then before she leaves, they threaten her with arrest. Yes. So that's where we're at to date, but we're still not done with this. Are there any more hearings scheduled between now and the November 9th, or is is that the next one? Not currently, and that may just that may end up being the next one. The judge kind of left it open that maybe we could schedule one in between that time and sort of finish with the non-Grant Frederick's testimony. And once again, the state has been very secretive about who they're calling as witnesses. So I don't know what their plan is. I know that we haven't finished with Michael Magana, you know, one of the trial lawyers, and that Bobby Barino, uh, the other trial lawyer, was having to sit back in the witness waiting room all afternoon, and he never got put on, both of whom were subpoenaed by the state. If that's all they've got left, we could probably get through them in another half day and uh, and then just have, you know, the expert, Grant Fredericks, who's really – <laughs> the focus of our innocence claim on November the 9th, we haven't really had, had been able to even put on the focus of our innocence claim yet. Now, 
we submitted a report that he did for the Forensic Science Commission, and he submitted a follow-up affidavit, but we haven't been able to put him on live yet. I guess the last question I have about what you know, how the hearing's going and everything with the actual innocence claim, and I know it's reading tea leaves, but at this point, you've seen a lot of the state's arguments, and you've put on some of your own with, obviously, your ace in the hole still yet to come out. How do you feel George's chances are of finally getting this conviction set aside? I mean, number one, he is innocent. So I feel good about it from that standpoint. I think that, you know, most of the time, the truth is able to claw its way to the top and and make itself known. Uh, so we do have that going for us. But that aside, I, I think the evidence has been more than clear and convincing, even so far, even before we put on Grant Fredericks. But I think Grant Fredericks is obviously necessary because now we're talking science. Despite the fact that things have gone well so far, I do think we need his testimony. I think we could very well prevail on some of the other issues, even without his testimony. But I I do think we need his testimony to prevail on the actual innocence claim. Okay, then before I let you go, Mike, the last thing that I wanted to ask you, you know, this is our wrap up of the, you know, our main wrap up of George's case. We're going to obviously keep the listeners up to date as as uh, habeas hearings go on. But I want to give you an opportunity to address the listeners with any kind of a call to action. What do you need? You know, this is a case you guys brought to us, and it's just been an incredibly intriguing and interesting case. And and to be honest, I don't think I've ever seen a more clear case of actual innocence. Moving forward from here. What do you need for us? What do you want the Truth and Justice listeners to do going forward? I would like to know, and I think very possibly the police already know, but I would like to know who this robber is. We don't have near the resources that the police have. Like I said, I think the police probably know who it is with all the resources they have. I don't think it's necessary for us to prevail, but I think it would certainly help, and I think it would put all of this in perspective, handling this case the way they've handled it, the district attorney's office is not only violating their oath of office and their mandate to see that justice is done as opposed to just seek convictions. They've put the public at risk by taking the focus off the guy who actually did this. And I would like to know who actually did this. And somebody out there knows. And with that, Season 4 is now concluded. We will be answering any questions or responding to any comments you might have about this in this week's Friday follow-up, and we will most certainly keep you updated as George's habeas proceedings move along. And I would request that anyone who is able to make the drive to Bell County, Texas on November 9th, please make the effort to attend George's hearing, hear Grant Fredericks testify live in person, and just let him and Tamara and his son and the rest of his family know that George has an army of support behind him. And now, as Season 4 is coming to its close, it's almost time to move on to our Season 5 case, our reinvestigation of the case that's come to be known as the West Memphis 3. But before we get into that case... The season premiere, episode 501, will drop on November 5th. In next week's episode, we're going back to season 3. 
Our audience engaged in season three like no other season before. Thanks to the hard work and sleuthing skills of many listeners, and primarily in this instance, listener Jill Gillis, we've discovered a massive break in the case of the murder of Kiao Go. Next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is our executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to Chris Brinkley and Katie Ross for all the hard work they've done and are doing on our website. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Stephanie McConnell, Sarah Mueller, and Anna Dindor. And thank you to Desiree Dunn for printing and mailing the transcripts. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your support. Mike and I are well aware of the fact that this particular case was way out of the ordinary for what we normally do. And I want to thank all of you who engaged and participated and stuck it out through these last six weeks. Every single one of you has our sincere gratitude. We look forward to working with you on Season 5 and many more seasons to come. Keep in touch through our email, theories at truthandjusticepod.com, or voicemail tip line at 269-224-2833. And like our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at Truth Justice Pod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.